0: I'm pretty good at dreaming stuff, but you need to also be really good at making stuff happen. And when I talk to people about creating teams, I talk about the fact that not everyone can score goals and not everyone can stop them. You need different positions and different people with different strengths. And I've been very lucky with someone like Scott because Scott gets stuff done. We work really well together with talking about who's going to do what, but I wouldn't have got to the finish line without partnering up with Scott. I can tell you that. I reach out to experts and trainers and consultants within and outside the golf industry from all over the world. I get them to give me their content for free because I expose them to a global golf industry and our members win. And so here's what we call a win-win-win. So what we're doing is really just copying for our industry what other people have become incredibly successful at in their specific industry.
1: Welcome to Season 9 of the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thanks so much for joining us, and please subscribe to the show so you'll hear all about upcoming episodes and you can enter our latest golf product giveaway. Just before we get started here, I wanted to thank one of our supporting partners, Golf Genius Software, for helping bring you this episode. Golf Genius Software powers tournament management of thousands of private clubs, public courses, resorts, and golf associations all over the world. So if you're a golf course operator and you want to do less work, have more fun, and generate more revenue, check them out online at golfgenius.com. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today, what I just said about Golf Genius, it ties in so well to what my guest is doing and what his audience and business is around, and my guest is James Kronk, who is president at Golf Industry Guru and principal of Kronk Group. Golf industry guru or gig provides online education for golf course owners and operators from the world's most successful golf and hospitality industry leaders, so you can think of them as masterclass for the golf industry, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about here today. So, Gig is a membership-based website updated daily for online learning to help golf course owners and operators create a virtual community and achieve greater success. So, James, hopefully, I got that right. Hopefully, I, I didn't steal your thunder by telling about the awesome things you're doing with Golf Industry Guru here. So, with that, hey, James, good to see you again, and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast.
0: Colin, it's my pleasure. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. And well, there's probably nothing left to talk about. You did a fantastic introduction. All right, shortest episode ever. We're
1: we're done. Dustin, okay, you take care. Have a great day. (laughs) (laughs) Now let's start with uh, your connectivity to golf. You've been in golf wearing many different hats in the profession and as a player with PGA of Canada. So let's start with that. So let's go in the way back machine here, James, and talk about your very first golf experience, the first time ever you had a golf club in your hand.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, thanks so much. And yeah, I, I was thinking about that when I was kind of getting ready for today's podcast and thinking about uh, some things you might ask me about. And I started thinking about actually my entry into golf. I learned the game, calling uh, back in Ontario. I, my family and my parents were members of a club, a private golf club in uh, London, Ontario called Sunningdale. Beautiful golf club. But I remember uh, getting a club in my hand. Well, I would have been younger than 10. I would have been seven, eight, nine years old. And I learned a bit of the game and and had a lot of fun with the game. And then I really didn't pick it up again until uh, I was a teenager.
1: All right. So what what was the drawback? Because there's so many sports that sure you were interested in. So what was the drawback to golf? Because that's always the problem, especially for young people or am my di- diverse crowd of, of making it welcoming and inviting why in golf especially at that age doesn't seem like the coolest thing so what drew you back to golf in your well team? it's
0: that's a, so true and and uh I mean I guess by around 1617 I pretty much figured out I wasn't going to be an NHL hockey player and I wasn't going to be a professional tennis player and I wasn't going to be a professional golfer either I can assure you but I had a buddy of mine in high school that was a member at a club pretty close to where we lived and he dragged me out a few afternoons after school and and that got the game going Again, And then when I went to university, I was at University of British Columbia. And, and of course, there's a great golf course. It's very close to that. And so when I chose to skip out of school, you know, when I didn't want to go to class, I just kept my golf clubs in the trunk and started playing some more golf at University of British Columbia. So I do remember I had the fortune in, in university to try out for the university golf team. We had the opportunity to play at Shaughnessy Golf Club, one of Canada's top-rated golf clubs, golf golf courses, and I remember the unbelievable Mr. Jack McLaughlin was the pro there, and Mr. McLaughlin is, is an esteemed, my goodness, recognized one of the patrons of golf in Canada was at the time, certainly passed away many years ago, unfortunately, but Mr. McLaughlin had an influence on so many people. And I remember after the first round trying out for the UBC golf team that Mr. McLaughlin said, I probably shouldn't come back tomorrow. For the second round so <laughs> that was my my short-lived tryout i did get to play shaughnessy though as a 21 year old nice. and um, and actually uh colin uh, that's what kind of got me started i started working at the university golf club in the summertime as a summer job in, in uh, university and i ended up actually working for mr mclaughlin's son jim mclaughlin who was the golf pro at university at that time and that was one of the starts I, I left it for a while, do some other things, but I came back to it later. But that was kind of my start in the game of golf. And I, I got passionate
1: about it in my, in my 20s. All right, so that was your introduction to the golf industry. I did not know we had that mutual connection to University Golf Club in Vancouver. I don't know if you know that I just joined last year, so I'm one of the a member of the weekend men's golf group out there and play every single weekend out there. So I, I know them and we shoot our videos for our YouTube channel with Mod Golf to do our product reviews. We're out there all the time, and they've been a great partner giving us access to different parts of the course. So a big shout out to a University Golf Course in Vancouver. Didn't play last weekend because it was the only time it was actually snowing on the ground, but we're out there, whether it's frost, got to hammer our tees in the ground or soggy rain plugging balls over the place, but it's it's been great. And we love playing out there. So did not know you had that connection. So, okay. So you had a little bit of a, a break, then started your career after university. So first, what's your background actually, both your major in college and also what would you first get into professionally right out of school?
0: Yeah, sure. You bet. I mean, I, I went to school because that was the right thing to do. I think back at the time, you know, I was go to university and try to get a degree. And you know, I had a fascinating uh, time at university, Uh, one year at SFU in British Columbia here, and then uh, three or four years at University of British Columbia. and Business and theater, if you can believe that mix. So uh, I was an aspiring actor. I was a terrible actor, obviously, because I I was very difficult to make a living as an actor. But back in the day, I, I say that my best role was that of a janitor, because that's what paid the actual rent. When I couldn't get a job as an actor. I was cleaning schools in the middle of the night. By the way, but I left university and gone to the restaurant business. And uh, there's a a restaurant chain in Canada called Earl's Restaurants. I was a waiter there when I was 19, and and ended up becoming a general manager with them. And and I learned an incredible amount about uh, customer service and about creating a culture of your employees. Earl's is still recognized today as some of the best operators going in the in the restaurant business. So. I learned my trade there, and and then I left the restaurant business to get into the golf business, actually. And I was 28 years old, and I decided that golf was where I wanted to go. I realized that restaurants was not something I wanted to do when I was 50. I didn't want to be watching uh, all kinds of shenanigans happen back in the restaurant side of things. When I was 50 years old, I decided to to get out of it. And I I read a book, calling called What Color Is Your Parachute, Okay, which is a famous book for young people. I still use it today. I still give it to some of my young kids that I coach today in business as a career guide. And it pointed me towards a golf business. So at 28 years old, I wanted to work for only two people. The best people in the business in British Columbia at the time, in my opinion, and many people's opinion, was Jim McLaughlin, who I had previously worked for. Mr. McLaughlin was in England at the time running a, a resort, and that wasn't possibly for me. And then the other person was Mr. Tim Tate, who was the head professional at Marine Drive Golf Club. And so I went and bothered Mr. Tate for a coffee, and and I told him I would wait for a job. Because uh, if you're going to learn, you want to learn from the best. I think it took Mr. Tate uh, six or eight months to offer me a job to come and make about $2 an hour, working 80 hours a week, cleaning golf clubs in the back of the back shop at Marine Drive Golf Club. And that's where I started my golf
1: career. Interesting, interesting. I, I didn't realize you and I have so much in common in the sense that when I was going through architecture school, I was a keg waiter. My sister was a general manager once, so I got a job in there. And then when I finished school, I w- I kept on as my side hustle for a couple of years as a keg waiter and working as an assistant manager. So I agree with you of what you learned in the, in the industry. I've written a blog post a couple of years ago when I talk about, I, I called it something like working in the restaurant ind- industry was my MBA. I believe in business being a server and being in night after night of kind of being in that crucible, that fire of then you being responsible for things that go wrong that aren't your fault. But that doesn't matter, and you've just got to make the best of it. You got to make, you know, lemonade out of lemons, and do the best you can, and kind of think on your feet, get a feel for people. Whether that couple wants a romantic night, that wants to be left alone, or that night as a server that they want you to be your best friend forever, you got to figure that out like within seconds. So I don't know if you feel the same way, James, but I I have no regrets, and in fact, embrace the fact that I had that opportunity to work in the uh, the service industry. Actually. Oh, that's so,
0: fantastic! Yeah, yeah I recommend so. it to everybody, Colin. I, I think we would say that. The word server we talk about when we're doing some training is truly actually to serve others. And if you have any aspiration to be in any kind of customer business, then you have to recognize that part of that is to serve others, which means that you help others enjoy their experience. And so there's great lessons to learn about communication, about empathy, about hard work, obviously, but certainly about communication I think it's incredibly valuable skills, serving tables or being a busboy or being in the kitchen, whatever it might be. Yeah, So yeah, no, I'm a big too. fan of it.
1: Yeah, and it. The, the team building you have there, you know, if one thing falls down, like even the dishwasher with most people look down on in the restaurant industry, but if they don't show up or they're not very good, the whole thing comes to a grinding halt. So we, I'm sure we can talk about the hospitality industry for quite a bit of time, but that also dovetails nicely into part of what you have going on with Golf Industry Guru. But before we get into that, I'm still intrigued here to, find, to get into your brain here. It's like, okay, you decided to be the service industry, the restaurant industry, and I have the same thing. I knew some waiters that were like 45 years old and still hanging out with like women half their ages. like, oh, that's kind of icky. Like guys, find a real job, move on. And they don't, right? It's kind of, they're stuck forever. Yes. It's kind of sad to watch. So you and I didn't want to be that person, but you had all these choices. Basically, you had a blank page in front of you. Why did you decide, why did you have this passion that you wanted to get involved in the golf industry? What was that draw Then you were going to hustle and work for two bucks an hour <laughs> cleaning clubs?
0: Yeah, there's a few things. First of all, I used to tell the story that the difference between managing a restaurant and managing a golf club is that when a customer calls you over to talk to you, in a restaurant, nine times out of 10, if not 99 times out of 100, what they want to talk to you about is that their soup is cold and their burger's not cooked properly. Right. When a, you're in a club and a member or a customer calls you over... They want to tell you about the birdie they just made on hole number seven or about how great their experience was most of the time. Of course, there's still the 10%. But generally speaking, the environment is an incredibly positive one. I was attracted to the culture of golf. I was attracted to being outside. I was attracted to the fact that the golf industry has many, many facets. I'm not someone that can do the same thing day in and day out. I love variety. I love the elements of a job that every day is a different opportunity to do something and to learn something and to try something new. And the golf business is a $14 billion industry in Canada. Yes. And what most people don't realize is that it's a business. And so what I saw when I was 28, when I did a lot of research, I met a lot of people, I asked a lot of questions. I went and talked to people in the industry. I went and talked to people that worked around the industry. And I came to the conclusion, my own conclusion, Colin, that lots of people are in the industry because they love to play golf. Not a lot of people are in the industry because they want to run it like a business. And I saw that as an opportunity. So I really felt like my interest in looking at the game and looking at the golf business as, as a business, as something to make money and to run it like an operation. I mean, as I said, I, I had a many years experience of working for Earl's where I learned about systems and culture and branding and marketing and uh, hiring and firing and training and all those types of things. And I was excited about applying those skills to the golf industry. And so I became a golf professional. I barely got my card. My highlight of my golf career, I think one year at the Canadian Assistance Championships, I finished in the top 10. That would be the one week I must have played good golf because uh, (laughs) I certainly did not get in the business because I could break 72 every day. Right. I've had my moments, but I became a golf professional. I'm still one today, 25 years later. I pay my dues every year as a support for what I believe is the history and tradition of the game and the importance and the role that golf professionals play in the game. I believe in that very strongly. I'm also one of the big critics of golf professionals and, and the fact that you have to learn that you're in the churn of business, that no one cares if you can hit it 300 yards, that when you walk into a golf shop, you got to get away from the counter and stop watching television and shake hands and kiss babies. But that's a whole other conversation.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mention all this. On an episode on last season, I had Robert Sarecci on, who is the general manager and chief operating officer of Medina Country Club. And he doesn't play golf at all. I don't think he's ever swung a club, but yes. he's worked at world-class resorts on the hospitality side. And he's recreated a culture based on experiences, not just for people playing the two championship golf courses. I wouldn't say he doesn't care about that. He does, but that's not the value. And you're alluding to this also. So he wants to appeal to the decision makers to those people that are not attracted to medina for the iconic golf memories of pga championships and all those other things which of course is usually the spouses and the wives of the guys that want to get on the golf course and play and those are the ones the decision makers and the gatekeepers that he has then created other experiences that are non-golf all those other touch points while they're there at medina and it works and sounds like you're so aligned with that mentality also
0: Well, it's tough. It's difficult to explain to a non-golfer what it's like to walk down a fairway at sunset or at sunrise and the fresh grass and the nature and the trees and or being with friends and telling stories and jokes. I mean, for people that love golf, they know what it's all about. For people that don't love golf, they never will know what it's about. And that's totally fine. I've been incredibly fortunate and blessed with the opportunities and experiences, the places I've got to see, the people I've got to meet, people I've got to work with. My goodness, if you ask me would I have done anything different, the answer would be not one second of it would be different in my world, Colin.
1: Nice, nice. So you've combined your superpowers of your experience in acting and the restaurant business, also with golf, so that hospitality piece. And we're going to fast forward to the last couple of years So as an entrepreneur, why did you decide, where did you see that opportunity, the pain points, the gaps, the business model to create golf industry guru? Where did that aha moment come from and when did that happen?
0: Well, if you don't mind, I would just go back a little bit. Sure. I used to manage a club in British Columbia called Westwood Plateau Golf Club, and I was there for 10, 12, 13 years, I think. And I worked for my mentor, Mr. McLaughlin, who now runs Troon or one of the presidents of Troon in the United States. And I learned a lot from Jim and from many others that I worked with along the way. But I had a very fortunate scenario when I had that job. I had a very supportive boss and a company, and it allowed me to kind of moonlight and to get involved in some other areas of the business. So I used to travel around the world back then giving presentations about creating staff culture and training your staff. And we were recognized as having a, we were rated as one of the top 10 employers in British Columbia. We were ranked by Golf Digest as having the fifth best customer service in North America. I have no idea how that happened, but one day um, an issue came out of Golf Digest and we'd never (laughs) advertised in the magazine, which is sometimes what you got to do. But all of a sudden, you know, we were rated as fifth best customer service in North America. And so I would have other clubs calling us up and saying, what the heck are you guys doing? And so I packaged that into a little presentation that I used to call... Lights, Camera, Customer Service, which is the stolen theme from any book about Disney or the Hyatt or anywhere else that will tell you that when you're in the service business, you're on stage. When you put on your uniform, you put on a costume. When you greet the customer, you're using a script. And that we're in the entertainment business. That if you're in the service business, you're in the entertainment business. And so I created this little shtick of mine and had a chance to travel around. And then when I left that job, I decided to become a consultant and work on my own and, and do that as a living. And that was 13 years ago. And as you know, as an entrepreneur, when you start off as an entrepreneur, there's no paycheck coming unless you go find it. And then when you find the paycheck, you think this is unbelievable and you start doing the job. And then you realize you have to find another job and another <laughs> job and another job. Right. Um yeah. it's a never-ending search for doing the work and finding your next paycheck. So I've been very fortunate the last 13 years or so doing that probably about four or five years ago, I started learning a lot about online, making money from a computer. I remember seeing a, the millionaire's laptop or all kinds of books that I read talking about how to be an expert in whatever business you're in. If you're an expert and you're a consultant and what caused people a thousand dollars to fly me around and put me up in a hotel and spend a couple of days with their team. And it was just me how do you scale that? How do you move that? At some point, you can only charge so much, you can only get so many days of the year, and you can only fly so many miles when you're away from yes. your kids. Yep. <laughs> so you got to figure out how to scale that. And so I started thinking about that a while ago, and I looked into it, and I, I've i had business coaches over my lifetime, and I've told them the story, and it just kind of sat there. And I kept looking at it, and looking at it, and looking into it. And two things happened in the last few years. One is technology has drastically improved a do-it Yourself to inexpensively put your platform online, WordPress websites, plugins, things that would have cost $500,000 to create five years ago now cost $50,000 to create. And, and I'm talking about an elaborate, significant program. Yes. So that's one thing. And then the second thing, to be honest, is I get back to people. And Colin, if, if you listen to all those speeches that I've given in my day, I always tell people I had one talent as a manager. And that talent is people. I know how to hire good people. I know how to get rid of bad people. I know how to find good people. And I've always had a fellow that's been unwise enough or stupid enough. And I even have to follow me around over my career a couple of times. He's he's always picked up the pieces. His name's Scott Massey. And a year and a half ago, Scott fell into my desk and we chatted and reconnected. And I told him about this idea and, and he found himself looking for a new opportunity. And we partnered up and we're only a year behind and thousands of dollars over budget. But we've finally been able to get our product online. And my lesson there though, Colin, is that I'm pretty good at dreaming stuff, but you need to also be really good at making stuff happen. And when I talk to people about creating teams, I talk about the fact that not everyone can score goals and not everyone can stop them. You need different positions and different people with different strengths. And I've been very lucky with someone like Scott because Scott gets stuff done. We work really well together with talking about who's going to do what, but I wouldn't have got to the finish line without partnering up with Scott. I can tell you that.
1: Yeah. Well, you just provided for our listeners here just some amazing entrepreneurial nuggets of wisdom there. A couple of them just to kind of reinforce those is don't try to go it alone. We can't do everything. We don't have the time. We don't have the bandwidth. You talked about being a consultant. That doesn't scale because you don't have a cloning machine unless maybe that's your next entrepreneurial endeavor. Create a time machine at the same time. I want both of those things to yes, clone yes, and, yes. and go forward and backwards in time. But you have to put faith in other people. Obviously, you have to do that with your eyes wide open, if, as you put find the good people and the people that aren't so great, but also complementary skill sets, whether it's through other partners and other organizations or other people, like you said with Scott, to bring in it's like take care of the other pieces. And the other one I want to mention here that you touched on here, James, is The idea is only the smallest piece of it and most entrepreneurs See that shiny light and they want to chase after that. and They're seduced by that. But a lot of entrepreneurship and what we do, its I'm not trying to put people off of trying, but it's not glamorous and it is a grind and you have, just have to be consistent and you've got to persevere and you've got to remain curious in order to do that. Because there are ups and downs, as we know. I know we're on an audio podcast here, so people can't see my hand, not creating a straight line going up. It's like all around like a piece of loose spaghetti and back and forth. And that's the entrepreneurial journey. But it's so important to understand that you need to execute at that high level and be consistent with that and that is 99% of the work and that's what draws people in whether it's investors or partners or even clients and users so that's what you're doing here is I'm looking at golf industry guru. so congratulations on where you are so why don't you tell us now because we've been on for over 25 minutes now and let's dig into it so give us the elevator pitch even though I did at the top of the show probably a poor job of it give us the elevator pitch for golf industry guru.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Well, Golf Industry Guru is simply designed for 35,000 people. And I say that because there's 35,000 golf clubs in the world. Our customer are those 35,000 golf clubs. That's it. It's a business-to-business platform. I've been very fortunate to travel around the world in the last many, many years, speaking at conferences, meeting golf course owners from Russia to India to China to Vietnam to wherever it might be. And at those conferences, I hang out with some really brilliant people that are other speakers and trainers and consultants that have expertise at what they talk about. Maybe they talk about kitchen design, or they talk about agronomy, and they talk about growing grass, or they talk about how to be a leader at at a private club with members, or they talk about how to be a better retail salespeople in in your golf shop, whatever it might be. We go to these conferences and we're asked to speak and to give a presentation. And then we all go back to our homes and our countries and we go be our consultants and do the things one at a time. And imagine the golf industry fundamentally is 35,000 individual operators. I mean, sure, there's some conglomerates, there's the Troons of the world, but generally speaking, 90% of the time, they're individual operators. And there's no handbook, Colin. There's no school you go to. I mean, you can go to school, you can get education from various different associations and very good education. But I can tell you, in, in Canada, for example, most of the clubs that I deal with are either the president of a club that became the board president and he's a doctor by day and a golfer by weekend. And he's all of a sudden responsible for a board of directors and a general manager of a private club and the club may be going well or going poorly. Or it's some young couple that inherited the golf course from their grandfather that built it 60 years ago out of a farm that no longer made hay. And so they turned it into a golf course. The golf industry is truly entrepreneurial in spirit. Not to mention you've got people that own golf courses for other reasons. Golf courses are owned for uh, for two reasons, I like to say, real estate or ego. That's the only reason why you buy a golf course is either you have the money to buy it and you you want to say, I own a golf course and you want to take the chance of making money or losing money because many of them lose money. Or you have a real estate play and you the golf course is an amenity to sell real estate. But getting back to golf industry guru, there is no playbook and training is something that is few and far between. Like many small businesses, they often don't have a training line in their budget. (laughs) They keep every penny they possibly can. And so training their staff and finding ways to train their staff or finding inexpensive ways to train the staff is a constant search. Some people do it incredibly well. Some golf clubs do it extremely well. Some people have great systems and great processes. Some people have manuals and videos, and then many have nothing. So, Golf Industry Guru is an online training platform that works as follows. A club signs up for 79 US dollars a month. And that was a, a significant decision. One of the biggest decisions that Scott and I made was to make our platform ridiculously affordable mm-hmm. because we don't want 50 clients, we want 5,000 clients. Yes. And it's like the old thing. Do you want two people paying $100 or four people paying, you know, $50? There's different ways to get to your bottom line. So we wanted to make it incredibly inexpensive at $79 a month. And for that, each club, they have 10 user profiles for each membership. So the goal is that an owner or a general manager of a club signs their club up. And then what they do is they sign up their superintendent and their chef and their food and beverage manager and their golf professional and their accountant and whatever they might want to do, their back shop kit. And then those individuals get access to great training. And really what we're talking about doing, if you want to think about it, is train the trainer. So our platform is not about training the 19 year old beverage cart girl or guy that just got hired. Our job is to train their boss to, to show them how to train the beverage cart person. So having a job description, understanding about communication, having a checklist, how to motivate them, how to hire them, how to find them, how to keep them accountable. I'm the chief guru finder. I reach out to experts and trainers and consultants within and outside the golf industry from all over the world. I get them to give me their content for free because I expose them to a global golf industry and our members win. And so here's what we call a win, win, win. I work with a fellow named Mike out of the United States. He's got an incredibly successful food and beverage consulting business. I ask Mike to give me some templates on creating a menu. How do you create a good menu at your club? How do you redesign the kitchen without spending money to make it more efficient so that you can improve your food costs by 2%? So Mike does a webinar on that topic, or he does a podcast with me on that topic, or he gives a checklist to me on that topic. And that I send out to all of our members where our members get access to that on Golf Industry Guru. And at the end of that webinar or podcast, I say to our members, hey, if you want to learn more from Mike about how to redesign your kitchen, here's his email. And if Mike gets business from that, that's fantastic. That's not part of what I'm looking for. That's just helping our gurus be successful. So we've created a template that helps educate clubs for, we'd like to say, $3 a day. We constantly are adding new content, hundreds of hours of content on various different topics. And then the people in the industry and outside the industry that have expertise have an opportunity to expose their services to our global market because we work with associations around the world to provide golf and screw to their clubs.
1: Nice. So you've created this thought leadership platform. So there's so many good things you put out there. I want to dig into a little bit. So when you and Scott were first putting this together, of course, you at Westwood Plateau and at other golf courses seeing firsthand the pain points that the industry was suffering on in all areas of experience, hospitality, the business side of things. As an entrepreneur, myself did this too. and still do it, but when you come up with something, you then make assumptions based on your personal experience or what you research, but you need to validate those things. And I've seen so many entrepreneurs and I'll have to say eight years ago with our first thing I was guilty of this also you get excited perhaps you create this thing and your ego gets involved and you create this nice shiny thing this beautiful baby and you don't want to put it out there and have someone tell you that your baby's ugly so you keep building it and building it you don't even know if there's a market or customers so the first thing you did for all of our listeners out there is you understood what we call in marketing the total accessible market your TAM which is 35,000 potential customers so you knew that and then started drilling down into that as far as what that would mean and just doing the math and what the revenue could be and how that could scale and where the business could go with that so i'm very interested to hear right at the beginning did you just start building stuff or did you have the confidence to put yourself out there and talk to basically customer validation to find out what other people around the world in the industry were really looking for and that would validate yeah. your assumptions before to, hopefully you didn't just kind of run straight into this thing i don't see what you have i know the answer is no otherwise this would be a mess and what you have is yeah. awesome. So tell us a little bit about that, the early days of how you then validated this as a business rather than just, yeah, just charging ahead great, building it.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. A great question. I can assure you if I was in charge, I would have run ahead. <laughs> and I can assure you that if I was in charge and I didn't have Scott, we wouldn't have what we have today because Scott is a methodical planner. He's my Yang to my my yin. We did lots of things, Colin. That's why we're a year late. So first of all, we went to our peer group and I know they will tell me when something's stupid. And these are my clients and people I've worked with for many, many years. And we tell each other what we think is wrong and and we're not afraid to be honest with each other about things. And so we surveyed, we went out to our peer group and asked them questions. What do you need and what would you look for? What would you pay and how much, what training do you have and what are you looking for? And if, if we were going to put together a training platform, what would you want it to do? And how would you want it to get access to? And so we looked at that number one. And each step we plotted along gathering feedback from and expanding that peer group to get their feedback because you're exactly right. In any business, first impressions are most important. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about first impressions to strangers, it's way more important than first impressions to those that will cut you some slack. So you you want to bounce off your stuff with people that'll tell you that's a dumb idea or that's a good idea. And so we did a lot of that in our building phase. Number one. Number two is that to answer one quick question too, we have a business plan that's like 100 plus pages. And it's got budgets that are like 5 years out and 7 years out. It's got a marketing plan. When we were originally looking for investors, I ended up self-funding this initiative. But when we started, we went to investors looking for investors and to get us off the ground and they all wanted a piece. And so as they, right? they wanted equity stake, yeah. yeah, we we decided. Look at, we're not going to give up a piece for the next twenty years if we can scrape it together ourselves. So that was a decision we made. But the third thing I throw at you, Colin, that I think Scott and I did well was we looked at what we wanted to do in other industries to see how it was being done and to see what lessons we could learn in other industries that we could apply to the golf industry to be honest, our competition in the golf industry is very little. There's some good stuff out there, but it's not like there's 50 people doing... When I apply for consulting jobs, it's not like I'm competing against 50 other consultants. There's only a few people in my world that do what I do. So our industry is very insulated. The golf industry is very insulated, which is an opportunity. It's also makes it very challenging. Oh, I know. (laughs) Um, So we looked at that. And then the other thing, lastly, I guess I would say is that I mentioned it in the very beginning. This is the lesson that I I tell. I used to pay $80 a month for my son to take a drumming lesson. And he would go down the street and once a week, and he'd take a drum lesson with a guy in his garage, and he'd come home. And then one day, my email came across this thing called Drumio, And they do online drum lessons. And for $400 US, I signed up my son for drum lessons that he now does every day on his phone, on his iPad, on his computer. He watches drum lessons. He learns about drumming. And these guys have thousands and thousands and thousands of members making ridiculous amounts of money teaching drumming online. So what we're doing is really just copying for our industry what other people have become incredibly successful at in their specific industry.
1: Well, I love this. And it's like you read my mind here, James. I, my next question was just that because so few people in the – well, in Canada, like you said, about a $16, $14 billion industry in the U.S. It was measured last year at about an $86 billion a year industry, so $100 billion a year in North America. And so many people in the golf industry, they're so heads down and it's all about the golf. It's not a criticism, it's just where they are. and You've been part of that landscape also, that they don't look for new ideas or think within golf of little tweaks or, or changes to what they're already doing, where what you touched on is just so critically important. Look outside of your industry and myself in architecture and design and what we create within golf and entertainment. We don't look at golf. We take the best elements of golf and love golf and everything else that's of lesser value. As far as the business model, we don't bother with. And then we pull in whether it's action sport, music festivals, entertainment, live performances, all those other things that resonate with people. And esports, those things that people love. Take the best elements of those and mix it up and create something new. So I'm so glad that you touched on that because you're already there. So I want to ask you to drill down on that a little bit more. So what industries, I know your background in hospitality and some others, but what specific examples did you and Scott look at and say, I know Drumeo was an example you gave. Is like, we're going to take a little bit from this. We're going to take a little bit from that. I know it sounds like Masterclass, which is this great platform of videos with subject matter experts and awesome celebrities all over the world to teach you anything didn't exist quite yet. But what examples or inspiration or validation did you have that you started to cherry pick the best elements from other businesses rather than looking at a blank piece of paper and trying to create something completely from scratch?
0: That's Yeah, that's excellent. If you don't mind, I'm going to answer that this way. It's the same conversation I have with any business owner, which is who are you and what are you all about? Mm -hmm. What makes you special? What makes your club special? What makes your staff special? What makes your product special? What do you believe in? What are your values? when you deal with a complaint, is the customer always right? Is it whatever you can do to exceed that customer's expectations? Or is it whatever's written in your policy book, that's what we follow because that's that's what we follow. That's our policy. These are culture questions. And to decide what something's going to be or what are you going to look at, you have to first understand what do you want to be? Because if you create something you don't want to be, it's not going to be successful and you're not going to like it. So we spent a lot of time deciding exactly things like masterclass. For example, we believe, first of all, the way millennials consume content, the way millennials educate themselves is completely different than when you and I got educated, number yes. one. I remember the first time I was at a driving range in the Arizona that had speakers on the driving range playing music and everyone was freaking out <laughs> <laughs> how could they possibly have music on a driving range the sacred ground of hitting the ball right. and how far we've come to now have top golf and launch pad and all these other types of things so changing tradition is incredibly difficult and we decided very early on that we have to balance our content to ensure that the person that writes the check doesn't think it's too out there. But the reality is that the content that we're creating has to be sexy enough and fast enough and interesting enough to speak to a 23-year-old supervisor who's in the banquet department, who's trying to figure out how the heck do I get these kids to show up on time? But As you said earlier on, each step along the way, the validation comes from peers. And there's influencers in any business, right? So we've got a few influencers on our golf industry. There's a few gurus. The gurus are listed on my page. I know if I put Greg Patterson on my homepage, Greg Patterson is the most well-known speaker, trainer, motivator. He's unbelievable. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He makes me look boring on stage, for goodness sake. And so convincing Greg, which didn't require any convincing, by the way, getting Greg on board, getting some early adopter golf courses on board, getting the associations. We have affiliate partners with the Golf Course Owners Association of Europe and Asia and Canada and hopefully soon the United States. And those are validators, right? That's what people, if they have a stamp on that, it's it's legit. In this world of free content, I had this question the other day, why would I pay for your content when I can find so much stuff for free? Mm -hmm. My answer was because the free stuff is crap, because you get what you pay for. Absolutely. And why would I pay $100 for a green fee? Well, because that's what we believe our product is worth. If you want to pay $50 for a green fee, there's another golf course down the street that you're welcome to go play for $50. But we're going to run our business based on what we think
1: we're worth. I love that. And you bring up the V word value. What's your value proposition? What value are you adding? And people confuse price or cost with value. And you're unlocking that. You are providing incredible value, differentiating yourself in the marketplace said even though it's only 3 dollars a day like you said about my math is like 35 36 bucks a month there's incredible value of what <laughs> what they actually get for that so you know I can keep going on and on and on here I know we also are going to jump on a video call that we're going to create some more content an extended interview for our mod golf youtube channel because I do want to ask you about the future and the opportunities that have it presented itself for uh, during covid times but please hold off on those right now So we'll actually switch over because, hey, all of our amazing listeners here, we want them to become viewers over there on the ModGolf YouTube channel as we continue this conversation on there, James. So with that, James Cronk president of Golf Industry Guru. This has been amazing. This has been a masterclass on how to get a golf industry business off the ground here. So, and so many other things. So James, great to see you again. And thanks for being a guest today on the Mod Golf podcast. Thanks,
0: Colin. I appreciate it. I will take off my pajamas and put on a shirt for the YouTube section because that's what happens now in this world of COVID is that we get a chance to uh, work in our pajamas, for goodness sakes. So uh, I'm happy to do that. But it was a pleasure being here. And I'm always inspired as well by watching your YouTube channel and your podcast. I listen to your podcast. You have such an amazing array of guests in the golf industry. And I think it's wonderful what you're doing. So I appreciate the opportunity to be included. Thanks so much.
1: Absolutely. Hey, before we go, I almost forgot. People are thinking now, Golf Industry Guru, where do I find out about more? So here's your chance. How can our listeners find out more and connect with Golf Industry Guru?
0: Well, Golf Finisher Guru is obviously GolfFinisherGuru.com because we're a website platform. And, and of course, if you want to learn a little bit more about what else I do, my company website is called CronkGroup.com, C-R-O-N-K Group.com. But GolfFinisherGuru.com is where people will find us. And Scott's all over the whole Instagram and LinkedIn and social media and all that stuff. So you can find us many places, no doubt.
1: Good stuff. So as I do in the show notes for this episode, I will include all those links that James just mentioned and also on your bio page. I'll- I'll uh, put it all there, too. So it's easy for our listeners to connect with you, Kronk Group, and Golf Industry Guru. So, hey, James, good to see you. Looking forward to jumping on our video call in a sec here. Thanks, Carl. So that'll do it for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James Kronk, president and co-founder of Golf Industry Guru. If you'd like to learn more about Golf Industry Guru, visit our episode show page where we've included website links and contact information. The video link for my extended conversation with James is also on the episode show page. So please subscribe to our ModGolf YouTube channel while you're there. If you leave a comment, I promise to respond. Please join me next time when my guest is Kathy Erickson, creator of The Short Game Place. I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor partners, British Columbia Golf and Golf Genius Software, for helping make the ModGolf podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from golf's brightest innovators and influencers. Our friends at Golf Genius Software have added a new digital scorecard option to the live scoring capabilities of its tournament management platform. So if you're a golf course owner or operator, I suggest you check them out at golfgenius.com, where they can help you reduce the work you do, have more fun, and generate more revenue. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.